Hi, I'm Rob Langton from Development Ready. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. Well, this morning we're joined by Theo Onesforu from Angus Property Development. Theo, thanks for your time this morning. I want to start with something you've been a little bit outspoken about, and that is the use of the term landlord, and you don't like being described as that. Why is that? Obviously, landlord is a very, very old term um, and had a reasonable application in previous eras. But in the modern era, I certainly don't consider myself a lord. And I actually think that there's negative um, connotations associated with it because I don't consider myself lording over anything or anyone. I am a lessor. And that just in the way that the word gay um, meant happy when I was a child, gay no longer means happy as far as I'm concerned. And so there's been a recognition in the change of the meaning behind the word gay and there should be a recognition in the, ch in, in the change in the meaning of the word landlord and say landlord's no longer in, um, the appropriate word, lessor is the appropriate word. Mm -hmm. I, lease, I lease buildings, that makes me a lessor and I think and lessor is actually more appropriate because I'm getting less. <laughs> Why do you believe that governments target commercial property developers like they do at the moment? I think the government's targeting all developers. All governments clearly are looking to protect their income and all governments obviously because of COVID are having to spend much, much more money than they ever thought they'd have to spend. And so governments must now be saying how are we going to make up shortfalls and what are we going to do? And uh, to me, governments view landlords more appropriately describe them as lessors, mm. as sitting ducks. Mm. Why sitting ducks? Answer, because unlike business owners that can say, look, we don't like the tax regime in Australia, we're going to move our business. We are sitting ducks, we can't move. Mm. And so government thinks we can just continue to increase taxes and continue to extract more and more out of the property ownership industry. We're in a fantastic precinct here called the intersection of Paddington. It's obviously quite a lot of bricks and mortar retail here. What impact has the shift to online retail had on bricks and mortar retail? I think that uh, online has made substandard or poor quality retail almost unleasable, mm -hmm. but it has made good quality retail, high street retail particularly very leasable. Uh, I've, I'll illustrate that. I'm just about to finish a development in St Peter's at the moment. It fronts two roads, Princess Highway and Barwon Park Road. Barwon Park Road is immediately opposite Sydney Park. Unfortunately, the council in its wisdom said that they require me to put retail on both street frontages, that is retail on Princess Highway and retail on Barwon Park Road behind my block of 44 residential apartments. The reality is no one wants retail on the Princess Highway at St Peter's. Mm. Um, the government is simply working on an old planning instrument and haven't thought about and haven't recognised the fact that retail's changed and there is just no desire for or need for these um, high street shops in inferior locations. The good news is that good high street retail, such as specific purpose retail, such as the intersection Paddington here, we are specifically only Australian fashion retail. The equivalents that I can think of elsewhere are High Street in Armidale in Melbourne mm -hmm. and James Street in Brisbane. Those three areas 
have benefited by both COVID and by online retail because more and more people are realizing that online only is not the optimal. Mm. The optimal is bricks and mortar and um, online as a combination. And um, I see that good retail locations are going to be effectively showrooms mm -hmm. for these online brands where you can go and touch and feel, try something on. I'm being told by the, ten by the tenants we have here at the intersection Paddington that people are coming in, trying on clothes, going home and ordering online, which is fine by me. And when you are creating a precinct like this, what do you look for in your relationship with tenants? You need to treat tenants um, as though you're not a lord. You've got to treat them as your partners mm -hmm. and you've got to be very understanding of their problems and you've got to work with them. One of the other things you've been vocal about is uh, the land tax or, or land uh, assessments of property. How have you seen that change over the past five to ten years? absolutely amazes me with regard to, for example, Oxford Street, Paddington. Land values have only ever gone up, but yet the resale value of the properties has come down. And so there's a disconnect between actual property sales and the land tax officer's assessment. Mm. I wonder whether the reason for that is because the land tax assessment is done in-house, so to speak, by uh, the land tax office. And I'm a great believer that the land tax office should be obliged to um, have their valuations done outside of their own department. If I'm a land tax um, valuer working for the land tax office, you can be sure that my, um, my decision will be influenced by who pays my fees, yes. whereas I'd love the work to actually go out. I think the government could probably save money by actually sacking its whole land tax assessment department mm. and just um, giving it out. The way <coughs> some businesses are, sorry, the way public companies are obliged to go to an auditor and there's an obligation to review your audit procedures, etc. I think that's a necessary thing. Uh, it seems to me that the government is both, incre is both increasing land values in the circumstances where property prices aren't going up and they're actually the land values coming down. And secondly, looking at increasing land tax mm. rates. And how big is the, the discrepancy between <clears throat> what governments are valuing land at and what an independent valuer would value the land at? Uh, not, the answer to that question is obviously different for every piece of property, mm. but I believe that um, that the margins are somewhere between 10 and 50%. Wow. Which is a lot of land tax. Yeah, absolutely. And one of your suggestions to enact change is for the New South Wales government to dismiss its existing methodology and instead take a fair proportion of a landlord's rental gross, uh, rental income via an annual income tax return. Yeah. Tell us about that. One, it could get rid of the whole department, the land tax assessment department. Mm. It could get rid of so much um, bureaucracy. Uh, I don't, I'm happy to give a percentage of my gross income um, to the government, but the reality is I'm giving a percentage of net income when I find, file a land tax return. I'm finding that, I've been in the industry a very long time, I'm finding now that it's probably April before my revenue, April in a calendar year, for my revenue is able to be allocated to my other outgoings mm. because the first three to four months now of revenue goes to the, to the state government for land tax. Mm. Now that's just ridiculous. And we're in one of your uh, tenants spots here or cafes I should say in Paddington, the Daily Greens. They're very complimentary about the relationship they have with you. How have you found the uh, agreements or disagreements between landlords and tenants over the past three or four months in particular? I have found that my commercial and retail tenants have been more reasonable 
than my residential tenant. I felt as though some of the government announcements about rent relief and things like that have emboldened my tenants, my residential tenants, to become quite unreasonable and, and argue that there should be no payment of rent. Whereas my commercial and retail tenants are sensible, they understand, they understand that everybody has bills to pay, they do, I do, and I, I am complimentary of all of my tenants in that we have been able to reach excuse me, agreements with every one of them. Some have been easier than others, but we've reached agreements. Whereas truly I've found that residential tenants have misunderstood the government's pronouncements on that issue and, caused, and it's caused them to behave unreasonably. And how have you navigated the impact whereby uh, tenants have had a rent freeze over the past three to four months in some cases, but landlords such as yourself are still having to pay the statutory and other outgoings? I read an article in today's paper about how many land tax relief claims have been paid out by governments and they are min minimal. Uh, if I think there's less than a dozen that have actually been paid out. Um, my accountant's been working on our claim um, for a very long time and um, I don't know that we're going to get anything. I mean, I think the government is treating lessors as though we are able to be taken advantage of in tough times. And not every lessor is in the same financial position. And what do you foresee as the future of retail in terms of a bricks and mortar? That goes back to what we were discussing earlier. I think that the inferior and the B-class locations are doomed mm -hmm. and will never be able to recover, whereas the A-class um, high street locations will be fine. The reality is, I think the shopping mall mentality is on the way out. There was a guy who wrote a book, a guy called Paco Underhill, who wrote a book called The Call of the Mall. I recommend it. He basically says that the malls are a 1950s onwards phenomenon. And he said that true of every cycle, that phenomenon is coming to an end. He wrote that pre-COVID. He is of the view that people work in air-conditioned environments and the idea of having their leisure activity in a sunless air-conditioned environment artificially lit and potentially less healthy than an outdoor environment um, means that um, they are, they've passed their zenith or on the way down. I'm delighted that um, uh, the intersection Paddington is, a high, is an open air high street precinct. And I've always said, I, I fully understand a mall in Dubai because it's just so hot you can't go anywhere. And I fully understand a mall in the depths of winter in New York because literally if you want to walk down the street, you have to go from one building to another just to warm up before you can go back out again. Mm. But Sydney year round, it's winter now and look how beautiful the temperature is. Um, Sydney is a city to be enjoyed outdoors mm -hmm. and um, I think that we're heading there. So uh, I feel very comfortable with bricks and mortar in A-class locations in Australia, but B-class locations, I blame the government for continuing to insist on the provision of retail downstairs. The, the governments argue that it's to activate the streets. The reality is no one wants those shops there. It's making it uneconomical um, and it's making harder for a developer to make something stack up. And how effective or ineffective do you think the property lobby's been over the past decade or two in terms of pushing the agenda forward for, for developers? I, I think that they've been um, ineffective. Um, one of my pet uh, miscomprehensions or misunderstandings or anomalies um, is if I do a commercial development, I, I spend $5 million building a building plus GST, I get that GST back into my pocket as soon as I 
as soon as I finish the development. Mm. If I build a $5 million residential building to lease out, it costs me 5.5 including GST, I don't get that GST back. Mm. Now, that's, that is discriminating by government against residential in favour of commercial. I don't get that. That's an unfair discrimination. If, if I was going to sell those apartments, I get that I will get the GST back. But all that's doing is encouraging me to build a building and selling it, as opposed to building a building and renting it out. Now, my simple proposition is, if you take away the real estate developers that are building and renting, such as myself, if you take away the investors that are um, renting out home units, etc., and you continue to disincentivize us, and you continue to punish us with land tax increases and etc., then who's going to accommodate all of the people that are out there that don't own their own home? I mean, I consider the property, the residential property industry is providing housing. Yes. And I just don't, I haven't seen any momentous move by the property council to, to raise these issues. And, so, and because as I see it, I've always thought that we property owners are like geese that lay one golden egg a year, and that is land tax. And that's even before we get onto income tax, et cetera, et cetera. I can give the analogy of the dodo bird. The dodo bird became extinct because it was so plump and slow. It couldn't escape. And we property investors can't escape Australia. Not that I want to. I don't applaud people that move businesses overseas to avoid paying tax. So as I, as I said, I'm paying tax for those corporations for those people that live in Australia, have their businesses based overseas and are avoiding Australian tax. Mm. Now, I'd like to think that we, as a property industry, should be applauded. And I just don't see that our lobbying organisation is achieving us being applauded. I think that we're viewed as landlords, whereas we are lessors. One of the hot topics at the moment is the build to rent sector, but you've really been doing it for 30 or 40 yeah. years. Yeah. Why did you take that approach uh, and why have you employed that approach over your career? As a property developer, what I experienced early on was I would buy property, develop it and sell it at a profit. But then I would look to then go back another buy another opportunity. But if hypothetically I'd made $1 million profit on the development I've just finished, by the time I went back into the market, the site that I would have bought two years ago when I was commencing on the project I'd just finished had increased in price by $1 million. So I was behind. So it seemed illogical to be completing developments and using the funding to go and buy um, new sites in circumstances where the cost of the site has been inflated by the pr property um, profit I had achieved to date. And you've always developed predominantly in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. You've also done some projects in Melbourne, but what are the fundamentals that have always guided you back to Sydney and always back to the eastern suburbs in particular? Well, it's simple. I, I like to visit every project every day and I don't like driving. <laughs> <laughs> Except there's lots of people making lots of money at Parramatta, yeah. but I don't wish to drive there. Yeah. Simple as that. I, you know, I'm more interested in my lifestyle. And if I've got spare time, I'll jump in the car and go to my farm yeah. rather than drive to Parramatta. One final one, you've got an office project, I believe, uh, that was mentioned in the press a few weeks ago, yeah. and you're, renting, uh, you're offering significant discounts to tenants that are thinking about moving. Yes. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, it's, it's been entertaining in that I've had so much contact in response to that. Um, so I'm building a 10,000 square metre building in office, um, pardon me, office building in Green Square. Green Square 
for you Melbourne people is in Alexandria. I have a site which is located between the Green Square Railway Station and the future Waterloo Metro Railway Station. So I've called it the intersection because we're at the, not only because I call a lot of my developments the intersection, but because it's at the intersection of two railway lines, Green Square, which is on the T8 and the Metro. I decided, I, I was planning to start the building pre-COVID without a tenant, but as a consequence of COVID, I've become more cautious. Uh, and I decided I would only commence the building when I had a tenant. My asking rent pre-COVID was $640 a metre net, which is exactly the same rent achieved by a developer in a lesser location and leased it the whole, his whole building, which is 10,000 square metres, to Caltex. Um, and so I thought, right, 640 was my asking rent. And then as a consequence of COVID, I uh, thought to myself, am I negotiable on rent? And I'm really, I must say, I'm really enthusiastic about building the building. And I thought, blow this, I'm going to drop the rent and make sure I get a tenant and effectively outcompete everybody. And I dropped it from 640 a metre net to $320 a metre net. And I've been inundated with calls and complaints from developers saying, how is it justifiable, how is it viable, etc. Um, and from a viability point of view, all I know is this, is that when interest rates were 17%, I was happy to buy property and develop property to achieve 12% net. When interest rates were 10%, I was happy to buy property and, and develop property and achieve 7.5% net. Interest rates today for me are sub 1.5%. So if they're sub 1.5%, why do I need $640 a metre? I don't. So I think the development cost on the building will be about $40 million. 1.5% of $40 million opportunity cost of funds is $600,000 a year. At $320 a metre, I make $3.2 million a year net. So, at, so it's, I make a very, very satisfactory profit, the $320 a metre. And so I was very happy to say, right, it's $320 a metre. Um, I had one real estate agent ring and blast me and say to me, I had a tenant that was about to sign for a building in Mascot at 550 a metre net. And I thought, wow, um, I'm sorry. 320 is fine by me and I said by the way I don't understand mascot at all because it's not on the metro rail line. Yeah. The metro rail line is to me the most important infrastructure being built in Australia yeah. and I don't think people realise what impact it will have of having a train, a train coming every four minutes. Yeah. If anyone's missed a train and had to wait 20 minutes <laughs> then um, just think about the fact that there will one air there every four minutes. Yeah. And so um, I'm really keen to develop this building because I love the architecture in, in it. I think it's, it's going to be a truly A-class building. But funnily enough, a lot of people have said to me, do you think it's going to be harder to lease it post-COVID? To which I've said no. Um, and for a couple of reasons. Um, one, my building, I'd hate to have built a building five years ago pre-COVID. The fact that I haven't built it yet gives me a couple of advantages, or many advantages. Firstly, we've incorporated openable windows into the building. Uh, and I think all of the uh, all of the medical authorities say fresh air and ventilation is very important for for avoiding um, disease spread, not just COVID. Um, I'm putting voice-activated lifts in the building. Um, it's only seven storeys, uh, and seven storeys to me is comfortable enough for at least half of the workforce in the building if they want to, using the staircase. And I'm going to build the staircases not like a typical office building staircase, it'll be an attractive 
staircase to use. Everything's designed in the building to provide enormous amenity. It's north facing, um, which is great in that I just, I've never understood the CBD and I don't even like going in there. It's a wind tunnel, it's shadow, it's got shadow, cast shadows everywhere, high rise buildings. So to me, um, Green Square is a, a place of the future. Clovermore is spending an enormous amount of money on infrastructure there. It has a true town centre, it'll have an indoor and an outdoor swimming pool. It's got a shopping centre, it's got everything and it's really a six minute train ride to Martin Place. Mm. So why wouldn't people be happy to, happy to be there? And if I'm a landlord and I'm hypothetically renting 15,000 metres in the city at $1,100 a metre, then I'm probably paying about $16.5 million a year for 15, sorry, yeah, 15, $16.5 million a year for 15,000 metres. If I'm thinking I'm going to give my staff two days a week at home going forward, I can contract my 15,000 metres into 10,000 metres. If I move into a 10,000 metre building that cost me $3.2 million a year, and I move out of a building that's costing me $16.5 million a year, then I am saving 13 odd million dollars every year in rent. And over a 10 year lease, I'm saving potentially $100 million. And I think that um, in these COVID times, people are becoming more and more aware of cost. Uh, and, and I think that will become attractive. And I'm actually looking to relocate someone from the CBD into this building. Also, if someone says, I need more room for my tenants. I mean, a lot of landlords um, had been leasing spaces on the basis of one per eight square metres. Um, if they say, no, we need to spread our staff out and we need to really give them one per 16 square metres, then, but without increasing our rent, what do we do? Or if I've got 5,000 square metres in town at $1,100 a metre net and I can move to, I can double the amount of space for each employee mm -hmm. and I can move to, um, there, I, I go from paying um, one point, uh, sorry, $5.5 million a year rent and pay 3.2. So I'm saving $2.3 million a year and everybody's got double the space. Mm. A COVID designed building, north facing, common sense says you must move out of the CBD. The CBD has nothing to offer going forward other than a density that's uncomfortable. Who, who wants to ride into town every day and be squashed into a train? Theo, fascinating insights as always. Thanks so much for your time.